We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning, Mark chapter 9, verse 42 to 50, as we continue our series in the gospel of Mark. So today, if I title this message, I'm I'm going to title it Jesus on Sin. Jesus on Sin. This is a, I have been praying for us this week because this is a message that is uh, needed. It's necessary uh, in in the day that we live in in particular. It's always necessary, but in the day that we live in in particular, it is time for us as a church to look internally at our own hearts. And so this passage does that for disciples of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me and we will read Mark 9, 42 to 50. If you're our guest, we just say this phrase, the very words at the end of the main text reading to distinguish God's word from my own. So here's what it says. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eyes... I causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You can be seated. And welcome to church. So, I told you, this one, Jesus is very straightforward here when it comes to sin. Now, actually, this passage that we just read pours out of a conversation. If you back up in Mark chapter 9 to verse 33, you're going to see that the disciples are having a conversation. It says in verse 33, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So here's, here's the context of our sin conversation. It pours out of a discussion Jesus knew the disciples were having behind him on the way to Capernaum. And that discussion was, hey, which one of us is the greatest disciple? Which one of us is going to get to sit at his right hand? Which one of us is going to sit at his left hand? And it's just pride, right? It, all sin flows from pride, And that's why Jesus discusses sin right here in the biblical context, because his own disciples were dealing with sin. I read a book about once a year. I don't agree with everything in the book, but I agree with like 90% of what's in the book. The book is called Not the Way It is Supposed to Be, A Brevery of Sin. It was written by Cornelius Plantinga. And in his book, he says that sin is the vandalism of shalom. Sin is the vandalism of shalom. So you got to know that uh, shalom is the way things were meant to be. It was how things are in the Garden of Eden. It's fruitfulness and wholeness and 
peacefulness and right with God and right, being right with each other. And sin, according to Plantinga, is the vandalism of shalom. It is actually a culpable and personal affront to God. This is sin. So the reason that we need to focus on this and really understand what sin is going into this passage of scripture is because we minimize sin. We minimize it. Uh, We minimize it in a number of ways, like it doesn't really matter or it's not really hurting anybody but me, or this this God will just forgive me because his son Jesus died on a cross to save me from my sins. So I'll do this thing. I'll keep being this particular way. I don't have to really deal with it. And I'll just ask for forgiveness at the end of the day. And we minimize sin, but it is an affront to God. Here's Plantinga's definition. It's kind of long, but I think it's, it's holistic and perhaps one that we should take, take seriously. A lot of times people describe sin as just missing the mark, just missing the mark. But I think it's more than that. Plantinga gets it right. He says, all sin has first and finally a Godward force. Let us say that a sin is any act, any thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or particular absence that displeases God and deserves blame. Let us add that the disposition to commit sins also displeases God and deserves blame. And let us therefore use the word sin to refer to such instances both of act and disposition. Sin is a culpable culpable and personal affront to God. So, I mean, I don't have to prove what Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God with that definition. I mean, even the disposition, a thought is an affront to God that is is, uh, off the mark. So I've sinned, you've sinned, we've all sinned. David understood this in Psalm 51, three to four. He he writes this after committing adultery and he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. But he makes the statement, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David understands that his sin is a personal affront to God. And this is the framework we need to come to this passage with. That when we sin, we are at war with God. It is an affront to the sovereign king of the universe. And that's why we can't minimize sin. So Jesus gives these three instructions for his disciples that I think it would be wise for us to understand. And we'll pick up in uh, chapter nine, verse 42, and look at the first one. The first one is this, is just simply do not, in your sin, do not be the cause of someone else's spiritual shipwreck. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. So when we're talking about little ones, Jesus is talking about disciples that are immature in the faith. We're not just talking about little kids, but we're talking about people that are just coming to him. And when we look at this passage of scripture, we understand these are ordinary disciples, these little ones, ordinary disciples that are poor in spirit, like Matthew 5 verse 3 says. And so leading people astray spiritually comes with great recompense. 
It would be better, according to Jesus, to have a great millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. Now, if you're a Jewish listener, here's what you see. You, you, have, uh, you live in a village, and it's got an olive press, and it's got, this, it's got this great millstone that it takes a donkey to push in circles like this to crush uh, olives. That millstone is immense. Secondarily, if you're Jewish in this first century context, you do not particularly like water. And drowning is the worst form of death to you. And so now you're hearing, if I cause one of these little ones, someone who's just coming to Jesus to sin, if I cause their spiritual shipwreck, my sin causes their spiritual shipwreck, it would be better for me to have this great millstone around my neck and be thrown into the sea. Lesson number one is a sober warning against inhibiting, injuring, or destroying the faith of simple, ordinary disciples. A fellow believer causing another believer to fall away. And this could happen in a myriad of ways. Not one way is specified, but there are many ways believers often cause other believers or new believers or people who are just coming to Christ, these little ones, as Jesus says, to shipwreck and either miss Jesus altogether or simply walk away from him could happen many ways. Abuse, racism, legalism. And you just, you just keep making the list. These are ways, and there are many, that sometimes we cause, as believers, our sin causes people's spiritual shipwreck. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, as they're talking about who, which one of us will be the greatest, lesson number one, don't let... Don't let your life, your sin be the cause of somebody else's spiritual shipwreck. There's the second thing Jesus teaches them about sin. In Mark chapter 9, 43 to 48, Jesus basically says, amputate the causes of sin in your life. Amputate the causes of sin in your life. So this is hyperbole. This is rabbinic hyperbole used to accentuate the serious business of avoiding sin. Otherwise, many of us would be walking around without a hand and without a foot and without an eye today. But this does not minimize the serious nature of the sin. Look at the passage of scripture again, verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And by the way, he describes hell like this, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So he's saying, look, cut out the sources of sin in your life. Amputate the things in your life that cause you to sin. He says, cut your hand off, what you touch. Cut your foot off, where you go. Tear your eye out, what you fix your gaze upon. We must be conscious of our sin because it's it's an affront to God and it robs us of shalom, of peace of that very thing that God is restoring. Now, here's the other thing we learn in in just this this discourse with the disciples is that sin paves a slippery slope to hell, according to Jesus. Now, there've been many theologians 
uh, as of late that have written things like hell does not exist or hell is not real. They want to have heaven, but no hell. I would, I would say to you, you can't pick and choose. You can't have one or the other. There is heaven and hell, or there is no heaven or no hell. And if I'm going to listen to a theologian about what heaven and hell is like, I'm primarily going to start with Jesus, the Son of God, the risen Nazarene. And three times in this passage of scripture, he says, your sin will send you to hell. He describes it as a place of unquenchable fire. I believe, according to the scriptures, it is a literal place. This is for us very important because it, 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 it does not allow us to minimize our sin, understanding and knowing that God will judge sin. And either he judges it through his son, Jesus, on the cross in our lifetime as we believe And Jesus takes the penalty of our sin for us. Or when we die, it's appointed once for man to die and then to face the judgment. We are sent to a literal place called hell where we will be judged eternally. That is true in the scriptures. You can't erase it. You can't take it away if you're going to take all of the scriptures. It also should should be a deterrent. For sin. This is how Jesus is using it here. Like, look, your sin is an affront to God. And also should motivate us on toward our friends, our families, our neighbors who continue in their sin and don't know that there's hope beyond sin in Jesus. Because this is their destiny. Sin paves a slippery slope to hell, according to Jesus. Now, the end here. In Mark 9, 49 to 50, what we find is that he says, be salted with fire. Honestly, this is a confusing passage of scripture. It says this, for everyone will be salted with fire. Verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So how do we approach this scripture? Uh, Have salt in yourselves. What are you going to do? extra salt today with lunch you know i mean what what is he saying for everyone will be salted with fire uh so i think for the original here for the for the listener for the disciples the jewish disciples there they hear uh jesus building a bridge back to leviticus chapter 213 talking about uh salt and fire and burnt offerings And what Jesus is saying is that everybody will be salted with fire. Let me just put it in the vernacular that I I think will speak to us now is that everyone will be a burnt offering eventually. So either in our lifetime, we can do what Paul says and, and give ourselves as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is a spiritual act of worship. Either we can choose to bow our knee to Jesus, to come to him, the hope and grace that that he offers and receive forgiveness of our sin. We can choose that now and become, in fact, this sort of offering to God, or it will happen to us later. The scripture says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't just stop there. He's giving his disciples an admonition here that they should be a preserver 
a healer in the world as one of his disciples. So remember they're, they're talking about the beginning of this conversation. We said, you know, they're, they're, they're walking along talking about which one of us are the greatest. And Jesus tells them, look, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. If you want to be great, you're going to have to serve everybody. This is what the salt part is. Other place in Matthew, Jesus said, you need to be salt. You need to be light. It's a preserver in the world, a healer in the world. In other words, in your interaction with people as disciples of Jesus, in the ways that you serve people, in the ways that you do relationship, is the ways, in the ways that you lead, you need to be salt as one of my disciples, a preserver, a healer in the world. And then finally he says, because again, this conversation started with, hey, uh, Uh, which one of us will be the greatest? If there are 12 of you walking along and you're arguing about which one will be the greatest, is is somebody going to get mad in that conversation? Yeah, there's going to be dispute. There's going to be fight. Particularly in that culture, everything is an argument, especially in that culture. And so... Yeah, they were arguing, they were fighting. This is not, you know, it reads so like clean. They were talking about, they were discussing on the way, but there was argument. And Jesus just says to them, like, look, be aware of your own sin, how bad it is, amputated from your life. Don't, don't cause someone else's spiritual shipwreck with your pride. But instead, be salted with fire. And he ends like this, have salt in yourself. And be at peace with one another. Have shalom with each other. Don't worry about who's the greatest. But just focus on your own sin and come to me. Now, this passage of scripture here is an unpopular message. Because you have to begin to look at the rest of the scriptures and discuss what sin is particularly. What is sin? What is sin in your life? What is sin in my life? And here's what I want to do right in the middle of the message. I just want to give you a chance on your own to quiet yourself before God. And I want you to ask him to reveal to you any sin in your life That is an affront to him. And when he reveals that to you, he will. It will come to your mind. I want you to confess that sin. This you and God, confess that sin and repent of it. So just for just a moment, right here in the middle of the message, just bow your head and go to God and ask him to reveal your sin to you. As he reveals that sin to you, agree with him that it is sin. Humble yourself and agree with him.
ask his forgiveness. Lord, we hear you. Thank you for speaking to each one of us personally and uniquely. Lord, we confess our sin to you. We know that it's true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I know that I've sinned. We know that we have sinned. We hear your voice. We confess that to you. Forgive us even as your people, as your disciples, for being an affront to you. Father, keep us from causing others to sin. Father, keep us from sin in our own lives. Give us the courage to amputate the sources of sin in our life and make us healers in the world. Take our lives as an offering to you. Give us peace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the big question sort of at the end of this passage of scripture for me is, where is the hope? Where is the hope? If sin is real and sin is in everyone's life and sin sort of has its culmination in a place called hell that Jesus talks about three different times in this passage of scripture, then where is the hope? Where's the hope for me? Where's the hope for us? Where's the hope for the world? And the hope is found in one word and in one person. The person is Jesus. The word is grace. The person is Jesus. The word is grace. There is nothing that you or I can do to rescue ourselves from the penalty of our sin, according to the Bible. There's nothing I could do. I need someone who has authority to forgive sins to have mercy on me and forgive me. I need someone who has the authority to forgive sins, to have grace and restore me because I can't rescue myself from my own sin. And what we find in all of the scripture is God is restoring this shalom, this peace for each one of us through his son, Jesus, by grace. Ephesians chapter four, two, verse four to 10, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead in our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not just the forgiveness of sins, but like, hey, come sit in my throne room with my son. So that in the coming ages, he might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the grace of God. I was reminded of a a sermon by Alistair Begg this week and there was a clip sort of going around the internet and and I thought we need we need to we need to hear this. 
We need to watch this together to understand grace because he talks about the thief on the cross. He talks about the guy that was hanging next to Jesus on the cross who really did criminal acts and really did sin, who didn't deserve heaven. I want you to take a look at this clip. So let's, let's watch this. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you 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 were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and, yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, uh, did you, Excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, Ranger. So, we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Guys, I've never heard of it in my life. And and what about? Let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. <laughs> now, now, that's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free 
for God that justice satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's why Luther said most of your Christian life is outside of you. In this sense, that we know that we're not saved by good works. We're not saved as a result of our professions, but we're saved as a result of what Christ has achieved. Amen. So here's the hope. The man on the middle cross said, you can come. That's it. It's the bottom line. The scripture says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He said you could come. He has the authority to forgive sins, to offer mercy and grace. And I don't know if you feel like, you know what, I'm, I'm too big of a sinner. I don't know enough about church. I'm not very religious, whatever. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that you turn to Jesus with your sin. We all know we all have sin. You turn to Jesus with your sin and say, I can't do this. Forgive me. Cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And everything in the Bible says he will. That's why he went to the cross. And so our response today is simply to turn to him. For some of you, maybe for the first time, maybe you've never come to Jesus. And maybe you understand your sin today. You just need to come to him and confess that sin and he will forgive you of sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Maybe you need to return to Jesus. Maybe maybe you've known this simple doctrine of salvation for a long time. And maybe you've become so comfortable in your sin knowing the man in the middle cross said I could come. And you've woken up today to this understanding that you're a grace abuser. That you're, you're experiencing the grace of God while you're being an affront to God with your sin. And maybe you just need to repent of abusing the grace of God. Repent of your sin and come return to him. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing one more song. We're going to open up this altar. This is for you. It's for time for you to pray, to talk to Jesus. You come and you pray. We're going to worship. And then at the end of the service today, uh, a couple of our pastors will be standing here. If you need to know what it means to trust Jesus for the first time, to be forgiven of your sin and how to follow him, come speak with one of us. We want to talk to you. If you need to pray, something's going on in your life, There's nothing you could say to me that would ever surprise me. Nothing. If something's going on in your life, you need to confess it and pray with somebody about it. Come pray with us. All right, let's worship. Would you stand and we'll be here to pray.